The title of my talk this evening is The Drama of Grace, Sigurd Unsed and the Narrative of Conversion. In 1941, the American novelist Willa Cather wrote the following. Sigrid Unset is all a great woman should be, on a giant scale. She is a wonderful cook, a proficient scholar, and has the literature of four languages at her finger ends. There is in the woman a kind of heroic calm and warmth that rises above all the cruel tragedies and loss of fortune that the last three years have brought. So you can read World War II. She simply surmounts everything that has been wrecked about her and stands large and calm. She who has lost everything seems still to possess everything, and the small pleasures can still make her rather cold eyes glow with marvelous pleasure. She combines in herself the nature of an artist, a peasant, and a scholar. She is cut out on a larger pattern than any woman I have ever known, and it rests me just to sit and look at the strength that stood unshaken through so much. These are touching words from her fellow author and friend, but I wanted to start with them because they reveal that Sigrid Unset is not principally a literary genius, but someone who has suffered. And her life is every bit as interesting as her novels. Action follows being. She wrote such incredible stories because she herself had such a story to tell. She was tossed about by innumerable tragedies, an absent husband, religious persecution, the death of two children, flight from the Nazis, exile from her homeland, and destruction of her own home. But in Willa Cather's words, she emerges from the rubble as a giant. She is calm and joyful and ready to tell her story. Her hyperdeveloped capacities for perception, imagination, and description make her able to transport us elsewhere, even to a place as obscure and random as 14th century Norway. She was born in 1882 in Denmark to Charlotte and Ingvald Unset, but quickly moved to Norway, where she grew up in Oslo. Her father Ingvald was a famous archaeologist and he died uh, when she was only 11. Um, one of the anecdotes she recounts is that the famous archaeologist who discovered the ruins of Troy, Schliemann, um, gave her father um, a little toy horse, actually, that he discovered uh, in the ruins of Troy. And Ingvald gave that to his daughter to play with, even as a child. Um, so it's interesting. I know of at least two places in her stories where there's a lot of significance laid upon a toy horse uh, given to a child. So it's an interesting little note there, a um, little memento of her father. Their family, of course, faced a tough economic situation after uh, the death of her father, and so she had to give up um, studying at university. And so she began working just at age 17 in secretarial work. But on the side, she studied and continued to write. And so she completed a novel while she was rather young, a novel which really was about the character that would later become one of her greatest novels, about the character Olaf Odinson. She brought it to the publisher, and they said, no, thank you. Don't try your luck anymore on historical novels. She was successful, however, in getting several shorter books published um, that were really set in her own contemporary Norway, uh, the first of which was uh, Marta Uli. And so with the success of her early contemporary novels, she was able to travel through Europe and lived in various places, most notably Rome, where she met her future husband, the Norwegian painter Anders Castus Svarstad. Um, you can actually Google image search a lot of his paintings. He's a very good painter. Um, so when they met, uh, she was 30 and he was 39. They eventually married in 1912. Svarstad had already been married and was divorced and had three children from his previous marriage. But Unset and Svarstad had three children together, um, the second of whom had special needs. Svarstad, unfortunately, was uh, rather negligent to both her and to the children, and so she assumed almost exclusive care of the children, including his own children, her stepchildren. So there were many periods where they were living apart, and he was absorbed with his life of painting, 
um, and really was absent. Sigurd eventually settled in Lillehammer, and it's there that she really began to produce her most famous works, uh, the one which you probably all know. She wrote in 19, published in 1920 through 22nd, through 22, Kristen Lavren's Daughter. And it's, it's amazing to think um, of this woman composing this novel, not, you know, fresh every morning, sitting down with a cup of coffee at her writing desk amidst a peaceful world. No, this, this world-class Nobel Prize winning novel was produced by a very busy mother who, after taking care of her needy children, um, after they'd all gone to bed, she stayed up and drank black coffee and smoked cigarettes and <laughs> produced this incredible work. In, on November 1st, 1924, she was received into the Catholic Church. Her reception was not well received by the contemporary friends and intellectuals she had in Norway. She later produced a work which I especially want to highlight uh, this evening, Master of Hestviken, which she published between the years 1925 and 1927. <coughs> she won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1928, largely for Kristen Lavin's daughter. There's an apocryphal story about her that when they came to give her the news that she had just won the Nobel Prize, she said, leave me alone, I'm studying scholastic philosophy. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not true, um, but I think it's understandable how that could be a perception. She herself regarded Master of Hesviken as her masterpiece, rather than Kristen Lavin's daughter, which I think is rather ironic, because even among Catholics, we tend to think mostly of Kristen Lavin's daughter because it has uh, more notoriety. Between the years 1929 and 1930, she published another work, which I want to especially highlight, um, one of her most Catholic of works, called The Winding Road, and it has two volumes, The Wild Orchid and The Burning Bush. And unfortunately, this hasn't been reprinted recently, so if you're going to go hunting for a copy, um, you may actually need to look more on like a used bookstore website. But it's worth the hunt, because this is a, a real treasure. Um, Unset's daughter with special needs, her second child, Moss, died shortly before the outbreak of World War II. And in April of 1940, when the Nazis invaded Norway, Unset was forced to flee to Sweden. She had publicly criticized Hitler since the 1930s, and her books were banned in Germany. At this time, her son Anders, her first son, who had joined the Norwegian army, was also killed in action. And so, in 1940, she fled to the U.S. with her younger son, her only remaining child. Um, you can read about her flight to the U.S. in her diaries, which have been published under the title Return to the Future. And, uh, you know, she, she fled the long way, um, going literally on a, on a train uh, through Russia and a slow boat from China. Um, and then another train from California to New York City where she was able to take up a kind of speaking tour, um, which she had been offered from her publishers. So she settled there in New York. Um, in 1945, after the war, she returned to Norway to discover her home, which had been taken over as a kind of um, like headquarters of the Nazis in that area, completely destroyed. Um, but why a talk on Sigurd Unset? Maybe this isn't a question that I really need to ask. If we infer from effects to causes, um, there's obviously, by the amount of you here, a great interest in Sigurd Unset, and perhaps that's proof enough. Um, there's some intrinsic good here. But why a talk on her by the Thomistic Institute? And here's my real answer. It's because she gives a literary response, or at least a very vivid description, of one of the most numinous parts of the Catholic faith the interaction of human freedom with the motions of divine grace. In 1942, in New York City, Sigrid made a very interesting comment when addressing a group of Catholic authors. The conversion of a hardened sinner is such a tremendous miracle that with God being almighty and the sinner yet having his free will, that I think very few writers of fiction are able to deal adequately with such a wonderful topic I would say, let us leave it to the theologians. And don't expect all of them either to write well or clearly about it. I like that last part. I do wonder what she was after with this comment, because the interaction of grace and free will is one of her favorite themes. 
When you're looking for it, which I invite you to do when you next read her novels, you'll see it everywhere. With this comment, Sigrid probably intended to give a modest bow to the theologians, at least certain theologians, leaving to them the strict metaphysical mechanics of conversion. She lets them explain how it's possible for God to move the will spontaneously and freely. But personally, I think Sigrid was being a bit too modest, because she's also given us an important explanation of the same mystery. It's true, the theologians demarcate the dogmatic structure of the mystery, but Sigrid puts flesh on the same theological reality and presents it within her narratives. She explains what conversion looks and feels like, the inner dynamism, the attendant internal psychological drama, and the external factors that can be occasions for grace. And yet at the same time, her characters are never too far from reality. They're people we know, and their experiences are ours, even if they're in 14th century Norway. If you've enjoyed reading her works, this may in fact be one of the reasons why. And uh, now for the interactive uh, portion of, of tonight's programming. I just wanted to have a show of hands of who has read at least some of, um, no shame in not finishing, some of Kristen Lavin's daughter. Okay, so a great, a, a good portion here. Who has read um, at least some of Master of Hestviken? Okay. Who has ever read some of The Winding Road, which includes The Wild Orchid and The Burning Bush? I finally have met someone. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Before going into Sigrid's account of the drama of grace, I think it's important to give a little background on the theology of grace. According to the basic catechetical definition you may have been taught as a child, grace is a sharing in God's life. And I think this is a very good starting point. Grace is a participation in the divine nature. Grace, according to its name, is something freely given by God and something which exceeds our natural capacities. Grace perfects nature. It heals and elevates it. According to our own natural powers, we're able to do all sorts of splendid things, like cultivate the earth and make friends and build skyscrapers. But it takes divine grace, a supernatural help from God, to be able, for example, believe in the Holy Trinity or believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Grace elevates our minds to the virtue of faith and our wills through the virtues of hope and charity. And there are some critically important distinctions to be made when it comes to grace. Perhaps you've heard people talk about actual and sanctifying grace. This is often made out to be more complicated than it is. It's really quite simple and built within Catholic practice. To have sanctifying grace is to be qualified at the level of our being as children of God, to have the Trinity dwelling within us and the stable habits of faith, hope, and charity. And this is what people mean when they talk about being in a state of grace. For instance, when someone refrains from receiving communion because they're aware they're not in a state of grace. The original infusion of sanctifying grace comes with baptism and if lost through mortal sin, can be restored through sacramental confession. There is also actual grace, which is a supernatural help for action. It's the grace of God moving us to be able to do something. And we use this language too. Oh, it seemed like I received a special grace to be able to do that, to be able to carry me through this project. Or I'm praying for the grace to avoid this or that sin. But here's the interesting thing. Someone can receive actual graces even without yet being in a state of grace. In fact, someone needs to receive actual grace from God, the motion of God moving someone to conversion before they can be justified and brought into the state of grace, whether for the very first time or in being restored to grace after serious sin. When someone receives these preparatory motions of God that lead them towards the state of grace, we call these operative graces. This is not scholastic hair splitting. It's critically important. It's Catholic information. 
Now, I've not gone into a lot of detail, but I wanted to highlight this reality precisely because one of Sigrid's favorite things to do is to narrate this phenomenon of operative grace, the divine motion working upon the as-yet-unconverted heart. Our Lord's gentle knocks on the door of the soul, beckoning it to repentance through the offer of mercy. If you're interested in learning more about the theology of grace, especially um, St. Thomas Aquinas' theology of grace, I really recommend the book, short book by Charles Journet called The Meaning of Grace. It's published by Scepter, uh, but it's a collection of conferences he gave, and it's very clear, very illuminating, and very close to St. Thomas' text. Sigrid narrates this theology, actually, now getting to her actual texts. She narrates this theology in a fairly direct way, in a beautiful scene in Master of Hestviken. One of the main characters, by the way, there's no spoilers in my lecture, so um, you'll still have equal motivation to, to read everything, even after. One of the main characters in this novel enters a Franciscan church that's under construction. So it's not dedicated, doesn't have the Blessed Sacrament. And let's just say this character has a lot on his conscience. He's not in the state of grace, and he's well aware of that. But when he enters the church, he's sort of haunted by the emptiness of this undedicated space that doesn't yet have the Eucharist. And he has the same sort of empty feeling we have on Good Friday when the Blessed Sacrament's removed from the tabernacle, except even more so because it's combined with his own internal guilt. She says, the very incompleteness and desolation of the place caught him like a hand clutching at his anxious heart. So she goes on to describe the kind of hollow and emptiness of the place with scaffolding, windows boarded up, the... Um, cement work and mortar kind of scattered around. But the most desolate of all was the black chasm of the choir. And above this image of the world without form and void rose the great crucifix with the glittering assemblage of candles at its foot. And this is a particularly vivid crucifix, which she describes, and she describes how this character sees in Christ's wounds his own sinfulness and identifies with Christ. Then it was as though his eyes lost their power of sight and his blood rushed back to his heart so that he grew outwardly cold as a dead man. All this was as it were within him. His own soul was as this house destined for a church, but empty, without God. Darkness and disorder reigned within, but the only sparks of light that burned and sent out warmth were gathered about the image of the rejected Lord. Christ crucified, bearing the burden and the suffering of his sin and his despair. The Christian soul in a state of serious sin is haunted by a kind of emptiness, a temple without a God to occupy it. From time to time, however, there are little glimmers of light, small motions of grace symbolized by the candles surrounding the crucifix in this scene that illuminate the reality and offer forgiveness. Sigrid's narrative approach to conversion gives us a very convincing account of the occasions of motions toward conversion, towards justification. Here I'm being careful to distinguish between an actual cause, which we need to maintain is always God. Um, God is always involved in conversion. Um, and an occasion, which is, let's say, a particular situation that commonly is the setting wherein, wherein God works. So if you've read a, a fair amount of Sigrid, you'll notice these different patterns. It's part of her realism. It's just true that certain types of situations are more likely to be accompanied by a profound impulse of grace. When someone's experiencing temptation after a traumatic event that causes them to ask fundamental questions or after a difficult conversation with a friend. So I just gave the example of a church without the Blessed Sacrament, but much more common is for her characters to be prompted to conversion by entering into a kind of physical proximity with the Blessed Sacrament. In The Wild Orchid, one of her characters, who's beginning to learn a little more about the Catholic faith, is removed by a profound actual grace of faith after he enters a Catholic church. And so I'll read this passage where the character is really having this mystery sink in for the first time. If it was true that Jesus was here, present in this way, and at the same time on thousands and thousands of other altars, then he must also be present in another way, everywhere and at all times. 
He felt the skin of his face grow cold and stiff, while his heart was like a burning heat in his breast. If this was the truth, then the whole of life was inconceivably more wonderful and dangerous and rich, so unspeakably more serious and valuable than he had ever dreamt. We should be clear, it's, it's not as though physically entering a church infallibly leads people to have some kind of religious experience. The interior work of grace is primary. However, I think many of us probably have anecdotes that would compound rather than detract from Sigrid's characterization of these moments. Conversion is punctuated by these kind of moments, and the physical setting of them is not negligible. What else do we learn about grace from Sigrid? It's persistent, yet resistible. Grace is persistent. Her characters get multiple chances for conversion. The invitation to conversion, which they reject or resist at one moment, is offered again sometime later. However, it's often a long time between intervals. Her characters have a surprisingly realistic way of ignoring God for long stretches of time. So you can blame the length of the books on that. (laughs) You see her characters wrestle internally. One moment they resolve to confess their sins despite the fear that involves, and then in another they harden their heart and stubbornly decide conversion is not a sensible option. Grace can also be resisted to the end. It's not as though all of Sigrid's characters die a visibly holy death. While it's common for the Lord to knock on the door of the impenitent heart again and again, there is no guarantee that he will wait out in the cold forever. And this is one of the dangers of the sin of presumption. When someone says, God will just forgive me in the end, I'll commit this sin and then go to confession. This is bad, of course, because it takes advantage of God's mercy, but it's even worse in another way, and I think this is perhaps where the danger some of Sigrid's characters are in helps us to know the seriousness of the Christian life. It's worse to think this way because it's not a guaranteed strategy for success. There's no guarantee that once in a state of sin, a soul will return to God, precisely because turning back to God is something that requires God's motion. We can't move ourselves into the state of grace by our own bootstraps, the bootstraps of our soul. But we should also be clear that God is very merciful, and he makes the grace of conversion available to anyone who prays perseveringly for their own salvation. It's interesting that in Master of Hesweiken, one of Sigrid's characters almost wishes that God would force him into conversion, decide for him. But it dawns upon him just how free he is. And to describe this reality, I think Sigrid makes one of the most brilliant analogies you'll find uh, in her novels, one that's completely in keeping with the medieval and feudal setting. She describes the free will given to us as human beings as a kind of weapon. So she describes this realization her character goes through. He still had his own inmost will, and it was a sword. When he was called to Christianity, He had been given this free will as the chieftain gives his man a sword when he makes him a knight. If he had shot away, all his other weapons marred them by ill use. This right to choose whether he would follow God or forsake him remained a trusty blade, and his lord would never strike it out of his hand. Though his faith and honor as a Christian were now stained like the misused sword of a traitor knight, God had not taken his sword from him. He might bear it still in the company of our Lord's enemies or restore it, kneeling to that Lord who was yet ready to raise him to his bosom, greet him with the kiss of peace, and give him back his sword, cleansed and blessed. God will not usurp the integrity of the basic weapon or capacity he's given us, even when we use it against him. And even after using it against him, the offer is still on the table to surrender it to him for purification, to have our wills cleansed and blessed through hope and charity. 
I think it's important to now turn more directly into the heart of the mystery and ask the kind of classic theological question that Sigurd was talking about in that quote I read a little while ago. If a man needs God to move him towards repentance, how can we say he's really free in repenting? Our interaction with God, however, is not measured according to the same rubric as our interaction with other agents, with other human beings. God's action is not a competitor or a rival to ours. Our causality is couched within his. In him we live and move and have our being. Without me, you can do nothing, Christ tells his apostles. And he is not exaggerating. God can move the will spontaneously and sweetly with his operative graces. Yes, a soul can resist, that's true, but let it be known that the initial interior assistance God offers to a soul is not illegal interference. Precisely because God is almighty and transcendent, he's able to be completely interior and imminent. And I'd really need to go into much greater detail to treat this adequately, and Dominicans in the room would get very excited and we start talking about the De Auxilius controversies and uh, start comparing ourselves with Jesuit theologians and all of it. would That's another lecture. Uh, those lectures are also available through the Thomistic Institute. My point tonight is slightly more fun. Merely to show you that Sigrid got this. She understood this part of the mystery. And her writings are at the very least in accordance with it. Add to this the fact that her narration of conversion is so immensely plausible and corresponds with the experience of so many. She helps make the skeletal structure of the theory appealing by putting flesh upon it. In The Burning Bush, one of her characters, with a heavy conscience, resolves to turn definitively away from serious sin. Sigrid vividly describes the process of justification that takes place within his heart. He felt the will which closed around his will. It swept over him like a flood, and he felt himself swallowed up by that of which fire is a symbol in this world. His soul was blinded by something of which light serves as a token here on earth. It was as though a burning bush drew him into itself, closed around him, consumed him, and yet he continued to exist. Then it released him again. Then it was no more but it left behind a paralyzing sense of happiness. He remained lying motionless, felt that he had grown still to the very foundation of his being. Something had collapsed within him, and depths had formed in the inmost parts of his being. And there, this stillness would always reign, even when the mental tumult was all his consciousness could feel. So notice how this description of justification that it's not a matter of this person being coerced. Um, the experience they have is not that feeling of being pushed, so much as having their own strength surrounded by God's, infused with God's. His will, struggling to turn towards God, is couched within the Almighty power. He's consumed, yet he continues to exist. And ultimately, charity forms a new depth in the inmost parts of his being and it leaves behind an ineffable stillness. For Sigrid, the grace of God moves and converts the soul. But how does it heal? And this is where I think those of you most familiar with Kristen Lavern's daughter will find some familiar resonance. Sigrid is keen on revealing how human beings are the architects of their own fate, in certain respects at least. Her stories are not stories where everything goes back to an idyllic time and people live happily ever after. Not at all. Things change. Her characters make irreparable, life-altering mistakes. But this is part of the true narrative, part of the realistic drama of grace, that grace does not change the past, but it does heal the soul. And if you think about it, isn't that so much better we had to choose between the two. God does not delete the past, but assumes it as the setting in which to work. And it's within the tragic turmoil her characters have brought upon themselves that they develop a profound openness to God. In the words of one of her characters, 
Our faults and our past are still part of us, but they're transformed into something else that forms the outline of us. And so the character says, it's a sign from God that we will continue to be ourselves for eternity. There's one final advantage of Sigrid's way of portraying grace that I'd like to mention. One you don't realize until you reach the end of the novels, so that's encouragement to finish. I've talked to many people who are intimidated by the size of her novels and afraid of taking them up for fear of never finishing. I actually, uh, not naming names, sat with two Dominicans at the lunch table today who, who, who openly confessed they didn't finish Kristen Lavin's daughter. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just start again. Um, <laughs> but by covering the whole of a character's life, we really see there's something of the lesson in the length. By covering the whole of a character's life, she teaches us something about the divine perspective on our own lives. God knows our story from start to finish. And it's a powerful thing to consider the workings of his grace in light of that perspective. To speak about grace, as we said, is to speak about participation in the divine nature. But let's not forget that God is eternal. So grace involves some collision of eternity and time. And the condescension of his grace into time makes it part of a story with its own bends and curves, chapters and milestones. As she reaches her elder years, this insight dawns upon Kristen Lavern's daughter. It seemed to her that she had come to view her life in a new way. Like a person who clambers up to a ridge overlooking his home, each farm and fence, each thicket and creek bed are familiar to him, but he seems to see for the first time how everything is laid out. She had finally come so far that she seemed to be seeing her own life from the uppermost summit of a mountain pass. Now her path led down into the darkening valley, and in the doorway of death, someone was waiting for her who had always seen the lives of people the way villages look from a mountain crest. He had seen sin and sorrow, love and hatred in their hearts, the way the wealthy estates and poor hovels, the bountiful acres and the abandoned wastelands are all borne by the same earth. And he had come down among them. His feet had wandered among the lands, stood in castles and in huts, gathering the sorrows and sins of the rich and the poor, and lifted them up high with him on the cross. In reaching heaven and sharing of God's nature through heavenly glory, our Lord will also invite us to share in his perspective, to see for the first time how everything is laid out, to look back on our own lives and see the movements of his grace as part of one complete story. Sigrid was once asked how she was able to write so realistically about medieval Norway. And she responded. I love this response. One can only write properly about the era in which one lives. <laughs> Sarcastic, but you see what she's after. She had been so absorbed by her love and study of the Middle Ages that it was a kind of homestead for her imagination. And so we might pose a similar question. How was Sigrid able to write so realistically about the drama of grace, the narrative of the Christian life? Well, one can only properly write about the reality in which one lives. Sigrid knew the gentle motions of grace upon her heart. She knew the interior drama of being pursued by the Lord and beckoned by his merciful voice. She knew the inner healing brought amidst the seeming wreckage of a life. And she arose, yes, with eyes weighed down with sorrow, yet eyes full of joy and hope. And she stood large and calm despite it all. And this too was by grace. Thank you.
Father. So now we're going to open the floor for questions. Um, I just ask that if you do have a question, please raise your hand and I'll bring the mic to you. And then also, it's just like a little side note, the mic is on and we are recording through the mic, so even if you don't hear yourself through the mic in here, it is on and I promise you people can hear you. Thank you. This is the fun part, the book club element. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the warning. Um, so I, uh, I hope this isn't too tangential, um, but so you talked about Unset's sort of perception of grace at work in the individual life. Mm -hmm. But it also seems to me that one of the reasons she picks 14th century Norway is because you have this strange mix uh, that you know we don't have anymore of sort of paganism and Christianity mm -hmm. at work. Um, the whole time, and so I mean, yeah, you see that in all in the novels um, fairly easily, especially when Kristen sort of does her thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I guess I was just wondering if you could also comment on the sort of working of grace on a more, I guess you would call it global scale, and mm -hmm. how Set sees that, right? Like mm -hmm. it, she does it on a personal, on a yeah, an individual personal level, but then like in the culture itself, right? Grace is sort of knocking and then mm -hmm. but sometimes it's not, complete. I mean, it's not a totally Christianized culture. Even Labyrinth, right, pours one out, you know, for the ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, and he's what you would consider an upright Christian. Right. So yeah, I was just wondering if maybe you could comment on her her using that as the setting and, and seeing the grace kind of, as you called it, knocking sort of on the door of a whole culture. Mm -hmm. Thank, mm -hmm. you. Thank you for that very insightful question. Yes. Um, I'm not sure this is a direct answer, but there's one passage, since you've read The Wild Orchid and the Burning Bush, um, there's one passage in The Burning Bush that I think really touches upon the more kind of zooming out and seeing the Christian life as a whole. And it's when he goes to like, or, or thinks about going to um, this church meeting, um, you know, and he's describing the, the kind of Catholics he's meeting are really like lower class, working class. And uh, he has this incredible reflection about how they're completely united, and really the only distinction that matters among human beings is whether they've chosen for God or against him. And uh, he also has this, or she also does this beautiful reflection through the character's imagination of really what it means to be a part of the mystical body of Christ. Um, so I that's just one answer to think about the larger perspective of grace. Um, but um, yeah, I think there's really something to be looked at. Um, with paganism kind of always being on the horizon. Um, to say just a general comment about the setting, I mean, um, one of her biographers says that, well, it's Sigrid brings us thought. She sought in the Christian Middle Ages the way in which to make Christianity visible and interesting to our own day. You know, it's like uh, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, um, at the end of the voyage of the Don Treader, when Aslan said, I've brought you into this world so that in knowing me here, you can know me in your own. Something a little bit like that. But this is part of why I think the burning bush and the wild orchid are important because it shows a contemporary setting for a conversion. And that, you know, because I've read at least one person who's very critical of that work and um, says it's, well, this is just Sigrid. She's this new convert and she's proselytizing. It's like, well, okay, but there's also the fact to reckon with that the conversion that the person undergoes is so hauntingly close to the people we see all around us today. It's not conversion from Lutheranism, really, into Catholicism. It's conversion from a kind of indifferentism, um, motivated largely by a kind of false scientific worldview. Um, so, like, that really hits home. And this is World War I era. So, I mean, sort of the... If that guy's not a man of his time, he's certainly a man of our time, um, the, the character in, uh, in The Wild Orchid and the Burning Bush. So, I mean, another way to, to go would be to talk perhaps about new types of paganism, <laughs> which are all around us. Um, yeah, so that would be uh, another angle on it. So I hope that answers some. When I discovered that uh, Sigrid was a third order Dominican, I was very excited. And then reading Kristen, you know, having uh, Gunnolf described in his white robes and his you know, black mantle, um, again, very excited. Um, but uh, 
she converted between Riding Kristen and Master of the Spike. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, reading Kristen, it's very clear that uh, Christianity is, is being proposed, being uh, advanced. It, it suffuses her writing. Mm -hmm. um, what really makes the difference, as far as you can tell in the story, you can tell us about mm -hmm. spoilers, between the two, Kristen and Master? Right. Uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I think there's really a theological depth. Now, this isn't very descriptive, but there's a theological depth to Master of Hesfiken that you don't find in Kristen Laman's daughter. There's still, and you know, of course, that passage I quoted is extraordinary. There's still a great deal there. Um, and and the, the other kind of answer to the beginning part of your question is that her conversion was gradual. Um, and so you can even you can see that she's falling in love, at least with the Catholic imagination in Kristen. And I suspect there are just there were kind of personal things that held her back on other on a, a kind of more day-to-day -day level or more within the structure of her own life at that moment that held her back from, let's say, converting quicker. Um, her conversion was not like a bam moment. It's funny, I'm citing passages, of course, where an individual gets incredible insight. But I think the important thing is that her conversion was gradual. And so while there are many Catholic elements in Kristen, I think Master Festweichen, you have a um, it seems in a way more realistic and more theological, not to pit them against one another, but um, I really do think there's a theological depth there. And the frequency, perhaps that's one of the main differences, the frequency wherein these kind of theological insights are expressed is much greater, much more frequent. So, Do you know any of the specifics of Secret Unsets conversion, and can you talk about that a little bit? Um, it's interesting to see, even in her, let's say, agnostic phase, um, in her early writings, you see her kind of defending the church or Christianity on, on logical grounds, as it were, against its critics. So this is perhaps not unlike many people's conversion, where they sort of get towards the church by defending it, um, just, just as a matter of argument. Again, they, they can see the silliness of people's common objections. So I think you see some of those hints in her earlier writings. Um, but uh, to, as far as I can tell, there aren't a whole lot of clear external milestones. Um, you know, you can tell it's really just something she wrestled with in exactly the way in which... Um, her own life reflects her novels, um, is or her novels reflect her own life rather, um, is a little bit unclear. But I think the best, probably the most um, vivid description of her own conversion is to be found in in the Winding Road, um, because she is so much. You know, what little I know about her from from biographies is is very much like that character um, and the kind of questions that he has and that she had. Um, but there are two biographies. Um, that, that deal with this in a little more depth. Um, one by Seegerson. Actually, as you leave, there's a handout that'll be available that has all of Kristen's works in Norwegian and English and the year they were published. Um, and that's coming from a timeline at the front of this biography, um, which is not perfect. I'm not, I'm a little hesitant to just recommend this biography, but it is, it is very informative and very good. Um, Seegerson is the name. Um, so if you're more interested in the mechanics of her conversion, you can see that. Of course, the fact that her husband was um, divorced, you know, had a previous marriage, was part of the equation, and perhaps even part of why it took her a little longer to convert than maybe she... That's just a hypothesis. So that when she entered the church, the marriage was declared null because of the previous bond, and she didn't want to pursue giving an annulment for his marriage because their marriage was already very... under a lot of pressure, you know, um, and he wasn't very present to her or the children, so... Mm -hmm. um, what's the Dominican approach? Mm -hmm. 
I think it's ultimately a search for the transcendent. Um, so, you know, if, if we have a Dominican approach, it's to try to find the one good, true insight within what is ostensibly a very bad uh, situation. The people are searching for God, um, ultimately. We know that according to their own nature. And so um, it's a matter of um, how do we respond to that, perhaps, is the next question. I think that is by, by showing them that there is a kind of deeper power and intelligibility to what is the tradition um, and to what the Catholic faith proposes. Um, and it responds to the same questions that are being raised in their own minds and their own desire for transcendence. Thank you. Um, could you say a few words about her um, her non-fictional um, mm. book on Catherine of Siena, how all of these things applied in it? Thank you. So this is, uh, thank you for mentioning that. And a lot of people know uh, Sigrid or recognize her Catholicism through this work. It's actually the last um, book that she wrote. And even though she had this incredible reputation as an author, the publishers rejected it. It wasn't what they were looking for. And uh, this really hurt her, you know, this, this was a big letdown. She had actually given, put other projects aside, which, you know, on the surface were more important or it would have gained her much more notoriety. Um, and so this was a, a, a real disappointment in her life. So it was only published after her death. Um, I, I have to confess I've never read it, actually. But here's my um, caveat, is that uh, I know one of her principal sources is Blessed Raymond of Capua's biography of, of St. Catherine. Um, and it's interesting to see the way she weaves in her own experience of Italy, um, from what I understand in that book, um, with uh, Blessed Raymond's account of St. Catherine's holiness. So it's, for me, it's almost like, oh, well, of course Sigrid loves St. Catherine, and I love St. Catherine. You know, it's like, um, but no, I, I, people rave about that one. So, so I think it's definitely worth, it, worth investigating. We have time for two more questions. Um, finally, finish the full slog through all three volumes of Kristen Blogger's other. Um, and I is there is there a change in where she's taking Kristen through the three volumes? In other words, the first two until the very end of the third volume, um, there seems to be almost a Calvinism on Kristen's part, an inability to accept forgiveness mm. or grace, and yet she gets there at the end of the third volume. Maybe that's the point, mm -hmm. but um, and I'm not so sure if her husband ever got. Mm -hmm. Right. Jury's out. Well, I yes, um, I have Erland in mind as 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 one whose whose you know final state is uh, much more precarious and uncertain. Um, you know, I guess you could sum sum it up in different ways. I I think that there's actually a, a great focus on the will in both Master of Hestviken and, and Kristen, but it's a different kind of focus. For Kristen, it's about surrendering her will to the designs of God and uh, because she's very self-willed, you know, and you see Lavrens, of course, is this extraordinary character. Actually, this is a cool thing. The way the two novels relate, you know how authors create a kind of narrative of the whole world in which they write. There's, the characters don't overlap in either of the two major medieval novels, except in this one case. You have this wonderful cameo from Lavrens um, where he's depicted as a young man you know, but an owner of this large and noble estate, and so it's narrated him as a young man. The, Chris, the, the Lavrens you've only heard about. You never really see that time period. Um, and so the, the guy goes, are you uh, the owner of this large, fanciful estate, you know, even at your age? He says, I'm 23, you know. <laughs> um, so that's a nice little overlap between the two. Um, but yeah, Lavrens, of course, her own rejection of her father, or at least her, her self-willedness, um, in rejection of her father's plans, um, which maybe his better judgment um, is, I think, a nice symbolic um, signification of, you know, the desire to accept God's own providential plans in our life. There's something there which comes up later. You could connect. Um, so I, th I, I like what you say. Yeah, she gets there in the end, you know, without... No spoiler, um, but we can say, you know, in broad strokes. Um, put, put it this way, if she wasn't around to write the third, uh, the third book. 
of Kristen. It, it'd be a different. Oh yeah, yeah. You don't want it to end there. Um, <laughs> I don't. Yeah. You can you can understand why she generated such incredible anticipation. You know, um, from her readership. You know, like the release of season two of, of people's favorite Netflix series was nothing in comparison <laughs> to, you know, the cliffhangers we're left with, as it were, at, at the end of her novels. But, but what I'm asking is, do you think she intended the end of the third book <coughs> while writing the first two books? I don't think she had it all figured out, no. No. And perhaps there's something of her own life um, and the transformation she undergoes within the book over the years, you know, because it was a long project, so... Okay, so I confess that I have not read her book yet, but I'm wondering if she touches upon or explores um, the role that intercessory prayer um, plays in, in other people's conversions. I think mm. about um, the vision of St. Faustina when Jesus hands her the ciborium filled with hosts and tells mm-hmm. her that um, her prayers help to save you know, those that many souls. Um, and in my own life, witnessing the efficacy of my prayers for other people and mm-hmm. their conversions mm-hmm. been really incredible and I'm wondering if it's just a mystery and I should just accept that or if there's some mechanism there or if she kind of explores that at all um, mm. well this is great this gives me an idea for a lecture by Father White on his favorite author and congruous merit that would be the key word to answer this kind of question how is it that we're able to help another person spiritually um but the first thing that comes to mind within Kristen's novels that I would point to is the way in which Chris, or within Sigrid's, saying this is where you run into trouble, within Sigrid's novels, Kristen is an incredible example of a mother who gets more religious with every child she has <laughs> because she has so much more to worry about. Um, and you do see her sort of praying, especially towards the end of her life. She does get remarkably more uh, devout. Um, you do see her... Um, really interceding for her sons, you know? And I think this is an incredibly realistic, um, you know, um, to, to imagine um, the way in which her vocation as motherhood in, to motherhood matures. Um, and I think, of course, we're seeing Sigrid's own concern over her children, you know, very tragically to have lost two of them. Um, so, because that's one of the major themes, right? How are we going to settle the children, you know? Do you have any... any um, great historical novel about aristocracy, the question of, of inheritance and, uh, you know, settling the children and, and all of this comes up. It's the main drama. And for her, it's, that's the case as well. She's concerned about the future of her children. Kristen is. And I think that that's a huge resonance of, you know, realism. Yeah. 